Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Nat Frazier interviews Justin Fishner wolfson Nat is an executive director at Agility, a $15 billion outsourced CIO firm serving 42 endowments, foundations, family offices, and corporations. 
Justin is the co-founder and managing partner of 137 Ventures, a $2 billion growth stage venture firm with a differentiated approach to sourcing deals. 137 provides customized liquidity solutions directly to founders, investors, and early employees of private technology companies. Before they get started, Nat and I discuss his diligence process, success of 137's structure, and the evolution of the market. Nat, great to see you. Great to see you too, Ted. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so this is an interesting one, 137 Ventures, kind of a different strategy. Why don't you talk through what it is about the strategy that attracted you? So 137 Ventures is investing in many iconic tech companies, but the way they're coming into these companies is what really attracted me to the strategy. They're bringing a pretty neat structure into investing in these great companies that we think creates downside protection for the limited partners while solving important issues for their counterparties within these, again, fast-growing, attractive tech businesses. How'd you go about underwriting a new strategy like that when you first invested? When I first heard about it, it stood out as as unique. And it was one that we flagged as wanting to get to know. The underwriting took place over years. I flagged this strategy way back in 2014. We actually have some friends up the street in Boulder with a multifamily office called Crestone, who are early supporters of 137. And it worked out very well because 137 would come to town to visit Crestone We had several occasions to hear the story, meet the partners, and just various opportunities to build conviction over the years and and was able to conduct longitudinal diligence over this getting to know you process. And then as it looked like we might have a room in the portfolio for their new fund, we really ramped up our diligence and started reaching out to some of their counterparties, CEOs and, and founders of these businesses. We talked to other players in the secondary space and really understood how what 137 is doing is different from most of the market. What is it about the principles that made you comfortable that they would be able to implement the strategy well? We saw them execute and we saw the portfolios play out. I remember one of the interesting case studies was an investment they made in Uber. And so this was actually a loan they extended to an individual with an Uber collateralized by Uber shares. And after Uber's IPO, if you recall, that stock sold off pretty significantly. And for a period of time, Several of the late stage VC investors, I think it might have been in the Series E, Series F valuations, were underwater. The preferred structures that they had entered um, into the company within all converted to common equity. And when the common equity sold off, they were in a bad way. Whereas 137's loan with this individual counterparty had collateral that survived the IPO and kept them money good to a depth of stock price that fortunately the company never saw. And it was like, wow, that is really different. That is really unique. So a lot of times when we talk about investing in a manager, it's really focused on the people, their expertise, their skill relative to others. It sounds a lot like this strategy itself is effective. How did you think about the strategy relative to the people in what attracted you the most? Yeah, I think to do what they're doing well, you need to be front of mind with the right counterparties. You have to be front of mind with the CEOs and founders of the businesses that many VCs and many growth stage investors would want to invest in. And you'd have to be immediately credible with those individuals. And I think when they first got going, 
their type of capital was probably more unique. And now just their own networks and, and reputation at 137 puts them in, in the deal flow that they would need. And then the structure just works and it allows them to create some pretty interesting portfolios with some great names and adding an element of downside protection that we think makes it really unique. How's the competition responded to the success of their structure? The competition has picked up. The secondary market has picked up. And there are several groups, some of them with decent, good reputations, who will buy shares outright. And that's a simple uh, transaction to get your head around. However, the tax implications can be pretty significant. The control implications for a CEO who's presumably bullish on their company can be pretty significant. And the perception of a founder selling out versus being in it to win it can really matter to other constituents. I don't think they are alone in the marketplace today, but they've been at it for a long time, have a very good reputation doing this. From a different spectrum of the competitive dynamic, there have been tech-enabled marketplaces for secondary shares that have spawned up over time. The market continues to evolve. I think 137 will continue to evolve. And for now, as more and more companies hit this profile, there's certainly no shortage of deals for them to look at. Well, Nat, thanks again for uh, bringing this in. Enjoyed the conversation. Same here, Ted. Thank you so much. Justin, great to see you. I'm excited to do this podcast with you. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do it, Nat. Well, I think we're going to have fun. I think it'd be fun to learn more about your background and all of the inspirations that might have led you to 137, going back to Founders Fund, going back to Kauffman Fellows. We can even go back pre-Stanford. What have been some of your inspirations through your background leading to today? You mentioned Stanford. In many respects, everything that I did kind of ties back to that Stanford network. And I really wouldn't be who I am or doing what I'm doing if I hadn't ended up there. And obviously, when I was applying for colleges, I wasn't specifically trying to go to Stanford. I applied to a number of places. I got into a few different places. And I actually almost went to Northwestern. I was born in Chicago really like the city, really like Northwestern, very reasonable chance that I could have ended up there. It was a close call. What made you decide on Stanford, aside from maybe the palm trees? At that point, the Cubs hadn't won a World Series. <laughs> on balance, maybe that was a factor. The thing about Stanford that I really liked was that it gave you a lot of flexibility. And so you didn't have to apply to a specific school. You didn't have to apply to a major. And you could just kind of show up, be a freshman, and figure out the rest of your life. And when I was starting college, I didn't have a strong view on what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the flexibility that Stanford offered was very attractive. I think that was a big factor in how I decided to end up there. During our own diligence, we do background checks. I know you were only 17 years old walking onto the campus there as a freshman at Stanford. What was it like being so young on a campus like Stanford. It was interesting because I was both young, but also had kind of a different experience from a lot of people. So the last two years of high school, I was at this place called the Texas Academy of Math and Science. And you live on a college campus. It was on the University of North Texas, live in a dorm, go to college classes. So I'd already had the experience of what a lot of freshmen have at that point. I'd signed up for classes online. I had figured out that if you could get all your classes on Tuesday, Thursday, you got really long weekends. And so when I showed up at Stanford, 
I was a freshman because obviously I had not been to Stanford before, but I didn't have the same sort of surprise at being away from home that a lot of the other freshmen had. And the upperclassmen very much thought of me as a freshman. So it was, you know, it was a little bit awkward in terms of finding my place, but that was just sort of the first year and things sorted themselves out over time. You talked about the flexibility that they afforded you as a new student. Does that imply perhaps an open mind about what you wanted to be when you grew up, if you will, on your way in? And and at what point did you think you wanted to invest in growth stage technology businesses? When did that cross your mind? That wasn't obviously until many years later. Through the Stanford relationships, I ended up working at the State Department for a period of time. Ended up actually being the connection to Peter Thiel and the Founders Fund network because there was this conference in Jordan. It was 2001, before September 11th. And I actually met Ken Howery because at that point in time, it was close to the the dot-com bust and PayPal was still burning. I believe the technical term is a ton of money. And he was in the Middle East raising money because there was money to be raised in the Middle East. And he had come to a conference that was organized by USAID that I had been vaguely involved in helping plan. And that was how I originally connected with him many years before I ended up working with him and Peter at Founders Fund subsequently in 2007. So it was like all these Stanford connections that ultimately got me to where I am and Founders Fund became the launching pad for 137. That's awesome. So here you are 25, you networked into PayPal, into Founders Fund, you're a principal at Founders Fund. Did you ever wake up and look around and say, hey, this is pretty cool going from bright-eyed 17-year-old at Stanford to in one of the premier venture firms on the planet? In all fairness, Founders Fund wasn't one of the premier venture funds on the planet back in 2007, right? There really had been no new venture funds. It was not like a trivial thing to raise that fund. People were a lot less famous. Facebook was a much smaller company back then. The reason I joined was it was just a really interesting group of people. It wasn't that I had a specific, I really wanted to get into venture or anything like that. The people were super interesting and it felt like it'd be a really fun place to be. And it was definitely fun and it was definitely interesting. Justin, you've got a very impressive resume for a whole bunch of reasons. I see the Kauffman Fellowship in the mix there about not quite a decade ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the Kauffman Fellowship and and what impact that might have had on your thinking, networking, philosophy, investing in the space? You mean the Kauffman Fellowship was really a great opportunity for me. I was a Kauffman Fellow back when I was at Founders Fund. It really was a great network. And there have been some great investors that were Kauffman Fellows kind of in an earlier generation. And so it helped bridge those connections to some of the earlier funds. And actually, as we built the firm, those relationships have really mattered because those folks built their own firms. Think of Jason Green at Emergence or whatever. So being able to call folks and get their perspective on how do you build the firm, not just how do you how do you make a good investment and how do you think about those things was really valuable. And the Kauffman Fellows, I think, has gone on to become a much broader program, more international, just a great network of folks. Well, I think one of the most interesting and arguably most fun investments that you came across at Founders Fund might be SpaceX. Tell us about that. How'd you find SpaceX? How'd you go to Peter and say, hey, rocket ships are the future? (laughs) Rockets generally win all arguments about what's the coolest investment. And especially given how successful SpaceX has been in transforming people's expectations about what's possible. 
it's such an easy company to talk about. There was the connection between Elon and Peter from PayPal. You know, if you go back and read some of the books and you talk to the folks, it was a little bit of a complicated relationship. But Elon was obviously building something very interesting. And the conversations that we had back then were that there was no one who was innovating in launch, just nothing. There are a lot of big players. They built their business on a cost plus strategy, and they had no interest in turning rockets into airplanes. And that's fundamentally what needed to happen in order to increase access to space. So that way you could do things like Starlink that were not possible based on the cost of launch 10, 15 years ago. And so what basically started as a vaguely crazy idea internally, I was able to kind of drive towards a major investment at Founders Fund that really, I think, became a very iconic investment because once again, like rockets are super cool and interesting. And that business has obviously done incredibly well. Let's talk more about SpaceX and, and how you've come to invest in it from the 137 funds in a minute. But another company you mentioned that you saw at Founders Fund was Facebook. And perhaps there were some experiences seeing employees, perhaps friends at Facebook that might have spawned the creation of 137. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about the problems that some of these early employees and founders had that you recognized as a potential new opportunity for a new VC fund? Facebook was a very interesting case study in what was effectively the future. People weren't as aware at the time that companies were going to stay private for much longer periods of time, that you would have this market for liquidity for all these founders and executives. And what was happening is I had a lot of friends from college at the time, you know, they ended up at Facebook. People were looking for liquidity. They had life events. They wanted to buy a house. They had medical related issues. They wanted to pay off their student loans. Just all the obvious things that happen in people's lives where they wanted liquidity, but they had all this stock that was worth a ton and no money. And so when I got a few phone calls around that time, it was a matter of trying to find someone to send these people to, right? It, you know, My goal wasn't, hey, I should go leave Founders Fund and start a new investment firm. That wasn't the compelling answer. It was, someone must be in this business. I should send all my friends to this person. And when I tried to get a hold of all the banks and the venture debt firms, like the folks that sort of seemed like the obvious connections, it just turns out there wasn't a great place to send people. That struck me as an incredible opportunity because if Facebook was the start of a trend where companies were going to stay private much longer, that meant that there was going to be a much bigger market to provide people liquidity and that you would be able to do it in this non-competitive way with all the primary investors and build a portfolio of great companies that would otherwise be really challenging if you had to be the ones who are leading every single primary investment. So you identified a need, you realized there was no existing source of capital for these individuals. How'd you go from that epiphany to hanging a shingle, breaking out with your co-founders and really starting a business around it? I'd gone through a couple institutional fundraises at Founders Fund. And so a combination of Founders Fund 2 was the first institutional fund. So had some experience launching a first time fund, raised Founders Fund 3. So kind of saw that process as well. And accurately or inaccurately, I sort of thought I knew what I was doing. It turns out I knew enough <laughs> that we could make it work, but probably not as much as I thought I did at the time. Now that it's been 10 years, you know, everything worked out. So it's fine. But it turned out that 
I felt like there was a market opportunity. There still weren't a lot of new funds, quite frankly, at the time. And we were explaining a new market opportunity to LPs. And so people understood the venture ecosystem, but they didn't necessarily understand or agree with the fact that companies were going to stay private for extended periods of time. And so 10 years ago, when we started 137, it took effort to convince LPs of that. Now, we don't have that conversation anymore. That's mostly gone away, but it's been interesting. And I think we found the right moment to build something new. So the limited partners have figured out what you're doing, but what was it like telling the story to founders at the outset? What's the summary of the 137 product that you think founders need to know? At the core of it, it's really just if you have stock in a company that's venture-backed and doing well, and you need liquidity, we're certainly a good person to talk with. I think we've built products that are tax efficient for people. We structure these things as loans so we can avoid repricing the 49A of the business. We can make it more tax efficient for folks. We can allow people to maintain voting control. So I think we've done some things that are smart on the margins, but ultimately we deal with the most bullish people in the universe. Every founder of every company I've ever spoken to is incredibly bullish on their prospects. And so it's not really about us trying to convince people that they should take money from us. It's really about some kind of life event that happens where the trade-off between having money or having a few extra shares in their company, that trade-off makes sense for them. And we've helped people buy their first homes or pay off their student loans. It just turns out that we have a much more personal relationship with folks than I experienced when I was making primary investments back at Founders Fund. That's really humbling. And it's, you make some good friends, I think, in a way that are just slightly different. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So the investment product that you're offering these founders and early employees is a little bit nuanced in how it works, how it's structured. You're not just buying the shares outright. You're making a loan to these individuals. Can you tell us a little bit more about the product itself, how it works and why? Sure. So a lot of what we do, and obviously we're flexible. So we've done a variety of different structures over the years and we're happy to buy shares as well. But I do think that most of what we do, which are the loans that you're alluding to, is it's basically a non-recourse loan. The person we're doing business with is going to put up some shares as collateral for that loan. The loan's non-recourse. And so they're not taking risk beyond the shares that they're putting up as collateral for the loan, which means they can really diversify, you know, buy that house or whatever it happens to be. And then the way that we make our money is that we get the right to convert that loan into equity 
at some valuation that we agreed up front with them. And so ultimately, obviously, if, if the business does well, and just for illustration purposes, if the company is valued at a billion dollars, but ultimately exits for 10 billion, we're going to have the right to convert our loan in at a billion dollar valuation, and then we'll get a 10x on that. And that's how we're making our money. So what does that mean for the risk return profile to your limited partners? We do have collateral on the loan. So we are less likely to lose money when things go poorly. There's obviously the outside chance that the company goes out of business, which ultimately is our problem, which then obviously is ultimately our limited partner's problem. So we try to avoid those situations. But the collateral does provide us some downside protection that matters. And then we're getting the right to convert in. And so that means we're getting real equity exposure when the business does well. And so if we can get into good companies that are growing very rapidly and kind of maintain their margin profile, assuming multiples don't insanely compress, we're going to be in a spot where we can generate real equity-like returns. My previous example, right? If you can go from 1 billion to 10 billion, you can generate a 10x return on any individual investment on a portfolio basis, even if you're not right 100% of the time, it's going to net out quite well. So Justin, as compared to your loan option financing for these founders and early employees, why don't they just seek out traditional secondary buyers? I think it's a combination of things. So part of it is we've created some structures, like you mentioned, that we can structure things as a loan that tends to be much more tax efficient, avoids repricing the foreign A. Like I mentioned, there's a few structural things that make it more attractive. I think there's a part where people are looking for good long-term partners for the business. So the fact that we've been around 10 years, that we've done business with probably 75 different companies, a couple hundred different people at this point, that matters in terms of when people are picking who they want to do business with. And the other thing that we're trying to do, and as I've talked about, we have a more personal relationship with people because we're helping them with their personal situation. Like We're trying to create that support network amongst the portfolio. And so we've did this just recently. This is the first time we've done it, but brought together a lot of the folks that we've done business with over the last decade and bring them together, get them to talk to each other and help them kind of make connections and friends with other folks who are in a similar life circumstance. And we feel like if we can help people build that support network, it's going to be really valuable. And whether or not that's trying to get their kids into schools or whether or not that's caring for aging parents or dealing with some trust or estate thing, it's helpful to have people to call on in those situations. And I think all of all of these things combined help differentiate us from other folks in the ecosystem and give people a reason to do business with us. How do you balance those personal relationships though with the need to be very discerning as an investor? What if there's a friend who's going through a life event who you would love to offer some liquidity to, but their ARR is only X million per month, or their net retention is sub 60%, or whatever the case might be. How do you balance the trusted advisor, personal finance supplier versus just being incredibly discriminating from an investor standpoint? I just go with honesty. It's just one of those things where it's so much easier for people to deal with whatever you're telling them if you just explain why that's true. So I've had lots of conversations with people, whether or not it's pricing. And it's we have a cost of capital. We raise money from you know LPs like yourself. And if we don't do a good job investing it, we're gonna get fired. And if we're gonna get fired, like what's the point of us making a bunch of bad investments just to get fired? That's not a good strategy. And then if we do that, like we're not gonna be able to provide liquidity to other folks in the future. So it's one of those things where it has to make sense for everyone. There's no free lunch. If we make bad investments, 
for whatever the reason, whether or not it's because we thought they were good or it's because we knew they were bad, we're ultimately not going to be in this business anymore. And we really want to build a multi-decade firm that can survive generational change. And we've been building this for the last 10 years. And that's really about looking forward to the next 10 or 20. You've backed some very iconic companies over the years. Do you mind giving the audience a sense for the types of businesses you're looking for, maybe in general terms, and then hitting some of the larger investments in terms of specific companies that you've made in the last few funds? Yeah, we tend to be thematic, I think, when it comes to business model and less when it comes to sector. So we're looking for people who can build category-defining companies and have a defensible business model. And the reason why we care about this is that in venture in particular, it's hard to control your duration. And so you want to be happy that you own this company, whether or not it's two years, five years, 10 years, even 15 years. And if that's going to be the case, you want to understand what makes that business model defensible How are they going to be able to maintain their growth rates over an extended period of time? How are they going to be able to maintain their gross margins over an extended period of time? And that leads you to a handful of, I think, broadly speaking, well-understood business models. You look for things that have marketplace dynamics, that have network effects, that have information asymmetries, that have economies of scale. And so if you look across our portfolio, you can see how those companies fit into these various buckets. Sometimes they can obviously fit into multiple buckets. And that's sort of what ties the portfolio together as a whole. And obviously, as you mentioned, we've been invested in SpaceX for a long time. They're vertically integrated. They've used their launch capabilities to help them build their Starlink global internet constellation. That's a real dramatic economy of scale. You know, you can look at companies like Palantir, where they've built very good enterprise SaaS business. There are a lot of information asymmetries that help them build products for their customers based on their understanding of how customers are using those products. You can look at things like Airbnb, where there's like a strong marketplace dynamic or Turo or things like that. So it's about finding businesses that we think have the right dynamics in their business model that are likely to drive returns for an extended period of time. Can you give us a few more metrics in terms of the investment requirements that go into your underwriting process? Yeah, we're looking for companies that have product market fit. We're not at the stage where it's just a couple of folks and they have a belief about the market or some product that they're going to build, right? Like we want to see companies that have built a real product that customers are using. And so you can get validation from the market in terms of both the technology and the engagement and the retention and things like that. So, I mean, I think that's sort of like the basic level. And then ultimately everything else just comes down to a cost of capital. If we put out 10% IRRs, we're going to get fired. If we put out 30% IRRs, everyone's going to be very happy. So there, there's somewhere in the middle that gets us at a portfolio level that gets us to the right spot. You mentioned some of the companies that you're looking for. Do you mind just giving us a sense for the types of companies by maybe naming your top five positions over time? The biggest position obviously goes back to the time I was at Founders Fund with SpaceX. You know, we're large investors in, in Gusto and Flexport and WorkRise. I think Curology rounds out probably the top five portfolio companies for us today. Those IRRs are, of course, a function of entry price and valuation. We're seeing valuations going up into the right. We're seeing hedge funds come into this space, sovereign wealth funds coming into the space, Tiger Global making headlines left and right by their prolific activity in the same area. What do you make of the competitive environment today? And how is it impacting the way you guys are looking at new investments? I think the environment has absolutely gotten more competitive. I think there are more players in the space. The one thing that 
I feel tends to get lost is that the space has actually gotten much bigger. And so when you think about when we started this 10 years ago, there were a number of billion dollar companies. And if you wanted to have a late stage portfolio, you needed to have all of them. That is not the case anymore, right? There's some statistic, it's something along the lines of like, there have been more billion dollar companies in the last 12 months than there have been in the five years before that. And that even undercounts it because you have these companies like Gusto, which is in our portfolio that just raised it, I think nine and a half billion. And so like, you've got these multi-billion dollar companies in this statistic. So, so the market's actually even bigger than people realize. I think it's probably grown by like a factor of a hundred, which means that while there is more competition, the market itself is actually bigger. And so I think that supports some of that growth. There's even more competition on the primary side. You're certainly correct that multiples have expanded over historical levels. I think there's some reality to this, and then there's some hype, right? Companies are growing at rates that are much faster for much longer than they ever have before. And so paying ahead in that context makes sense, but you got to be right about growth. And I think that's the number one thing that when we are right, it's because we are right about growth and we are wrong. It was because we are wrong about growth. And it makes it a little bit easier because you know what you're focused on, but predicting growth in years you know, three, four, and five is a hard thing to do. If you need growth numbers five years out to make sense of, of value today, there's some reliance on discount rates. With the Fed hinting at rate increases next year, do you think that's going to splash cold water on growth stage tech company valuations today if those future earnings are, are worth less, discounted back at higher rates? Mathematically, you would certainly expect that to be the case. I still come back to the growth answer, which is that if you have companies that are growing 200% a year, that you can overcome changes in interest rates. Obviously, if they make interest rates 20%, then that's really going to change a lot of things. But I doubt what matters in the small part of the world we live in is going to be the thing anyone cares about at that point. But relatively, a normalization of interest rates to being positive, I think, won't matter for very high growth companies. And that's fundamentally what we're focused on. And so if you're right about the growth, it will cover up a lot of the mistakes or even the compression in valuation multiples. No, that's a fair point. Speaking of market environments, 2021's already seen record IPO activity. It's great for your existing portfolios and your existing limited partners who've seen distributions from your current funds. Curious though, if there's any impact on the demand for your very nuanced products that you're offering to founders and early employees, if the traditional means of getting paid is now occurring around us left and right. IPOs have definitely been great. There's been a dramatic uptick in IPOs compared to a few years ago. At the same time, a lot of the companies that are going public have been private for an extended period of time, right? I mean, Airbnb, Palantir, I mean, these companies have been private for over a decade. So I'm not sure that the fact that there's all these IPOs really changes people's need for liquidity or is dramatically changing the duration that companies are staying private for. And partially what's happening is you've got folks who are running private companies who are seeing liquidity in the public markets, realizing that it's going to take them another three, four or five years to get there and understanding that they may want some liquidity today. So the IPO market isn't fundamentally changing the need or desire for liquidity in our view. Earlier, you talked about creating the business because there was lack of capital lack of alternatives for these founders and early employees. What's happened to the competitive dynamic in terms of other secondary players, venture debt or otherwise? On the technology front, we've seen Carta X 
break into secondary market for private shares. How are you thinking about the competition? There's certainly more players in the space. I think we've seen secondary tacked on to primary rounds more frequently at earlier stages. So it's not necessarily that people are focused on or specializing in this area, but they are including it in some of the things they would be doing anyway. So it doesn't mean that we have like one competitor. We have a bunch of people who are occasionally doing it, which is an interesting dynamic. You mentioned some of the marketplaces. People have tried to build marketplaces in the past that haven't succeeded, I think, for understandable reasons. The incentive models of the major players are not necessarily aligned with that. Obviously, if you want your stock to trade in a marketplace, you could take it public on NASDAQ or NYSE. Or that's fundamentally the benefit of taking it public. The benefit of being a private company is getting to choose who your investors are and who do you want to work with and who do you think is going to be a good long-term partner. And that's not always about price. It's not necessarily the number one consideration for people. And there's value in not having your employees check the stock price every day. Facebook went public. The IPO was a little rocky. Stock price fell meaningfully. Still had a lot of friends at the company and friends who had recently left the company. They spent, what was it, about a year until the stock price rebounded. Probably spent that whole year just talking about the stock price, right? That was a massive distraction to the business. And in many respects, didn't reflect the fundamentals of the business. There are a lot of technical reasons why that happened. And clearly, once the market understood what was going on and the stock price recovered, so not having your employees check the stock price every day is a plus as well. We're not impacting the stock price and the 409A valuations when trying to recruit new employees. Absolutely. I mean, every company right now, people forget that in times where capital is easier, hiring is harder. And so people have traded one problem for the other, which is that it's much easier to raise money today at quite good prices, but then you're turning around and trying to hire people. And that's a brutal market right now. It's an expensive market. And so you're spending more money on talent, which is in some sense, just another form of dilution, both because you're granting people equity and you have to raise the money to pay them their salaries. So there are trade-offs in all environments. This is a good one for raising capital. It's a very tough one when it comes to hiring. That's understandable. Speaking of hiring, I know the team at 137 has grown. How do you think about adding colleagues, especially to the investor function? We want to hire people in with some work experience, but have the opportunity for them to be at the firm for an extended period of time where they can actually end up leading the investment team, right? That's ultimately the goal. And that means that we need to have a way of bringing in really good junior talent. I think the fact that it's not a rotational role is attractive to a lot of people. We need to find ways to help train folks, move them through the process, and ultimately get people to the partner level. So I think we've sort of committed to doing that internally. Obviously, we've continued to scale the business as well. And that's partially a function of the fact that the market has scaled and we want to continue to be a leader in the space. And in that context, like we need to hire more folks. It's just the natural challenge of the business of venture. People think about venture as, well, you're just making these investments in companies. And that is super important and core to the business. But you need to build all this infrastructure to make that possible. And so we've really focused on that infrastructure piece in the last 12 months. And we're trying to hire more into the investment team. And that's really the key, I think, to our future success. By the way, what's it been like to invest your prior funds, raise a new fund, and be a relatively new dad all at the same time. <laughs> That's wearing, out, wearing a lot of hats. 
you've got some kids too. So I, I think you would recognize my response, which is tired, I think is, is the challenge. Yeah, and really it's just trying to juggle all these things. And it's certainly a little bit more complicated these days than it was five or 10 years ago where I was single and did not have kids. So life gets more complicated, but it gets more fun as well. Congrats on 10 years since founding 137 Ventures, quite the milestone. And with 10 good years behind you, I've, I've got to ask, what does the next decade have in store for you and your firm? Yeah, thank you. It's kind of crazy that I've been doing this now for 10 years. It's actually the longest I've ever done anything. You know, we built a really great team. It's a really exciting time to be doing this. And now that we've gotten it to this point, I think we have the, we sort of earned the right to think about the business, not in terms of, hey, can we raise the next fund? It's, can we build the infrastructure in the business to think about things on a 10-year time horizon, which you know, sort of the time rough cut it takes from someone to come in as a junior person and end up in a senior leadership position on the investment side. And if we can do that successfully over the next 10 years, I think we could build something pretty special. Would love to close today with some questions. So to start, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work or family? Well, you called out that I have a small child. So I don't have a lot of things these days, but I used to play poker. I'd still aspire to play poker again. It's it's a great game that just takes all of my mental focus, which is hard to find things like that these days. And there's so many great analogies to life, investing. Like it's just, it's a really great game. So that's what I do if I have time. What is your most important daily habit? These days, it's just trying to figure out how to sleep more. I feel like everything is just like, if you have a baby, it's like, <laughs> you don't really do anything else and you're just trying to sleep. But but right now, it's like, if I can just get enough sleep, then that allows me to be productive or cover things with my wife or whatnot. So whenever I can, that's the thing I'm trying to get. What is your biggest personal pet peeve? You know, it always drives me nuts on email. I guess two things. It's like when people can't use reply all correctly which is a combination of not replying all when they're supposed to and replying all when they're not supposed to, which is like a subset of when people send emails that don't need to be sent. I don't need like a thanks email for things that you don't need to say thanks for. It's like one more email I got to look at. So just trying to keep things uncluttered and efficient is always appreciated on my side. Which two people had the biggest impact on your professional life? I think in a professional sense, the time I spent with Peter Thiel at Founders Fund, I think has really shaped how I think about investing. And even going back to that time, John Powers, who is a CIO at Stanford, he did more for my career than almost anyone else. He really helped elevate me at Founders Fund. So I will always appreciate him for that. What were some of the lessons that those two gentlemen left you with more specifically? A lot of how we think about business models and the people that we invest in. I think a lot of that comes from Peter. I think with respect to John, it was, you could always find the right person to work with. It didn't have to be the person at the top of the organization or whatnot. It was like, just find the right person to work with within the organization, get a lot of things done. And people will appreciate it if you're not always like calling their boss for things or going over their head to make things happen. Is there a lesson from your parents? That's really stuck with you over the years. I think it's sort of a related thing. It's always being good to people, being kind of generous with your time in a business context. 
I think unsurprisingly, the assistants are actually the most important people. They can get an incredible number of important things done and get you connected to the right folks or get the person that they work with on the phone with you for five or 10 minutes when it really matters. And some people, they're just not nice to everyone for reasons I don't quite understand. So I think I got that view from my parents. Is there a life lesson that you've learned that you wish you knew earlier in your life? Yeah, it's one of those like complicated things because once you know it, you think you should be able to plan accordingly. But in my experience, everything always takes longer than you expect, which is an odd thing to say when you know that and you should therefore be able to plan on the expectation it's going to take longer than you expect. And you never quite actually get there. So every time when we raise the first fund or when we're trying to get an investment done or just whatever it happens to be like, everything always takes longer, which is just kind of bizarre, but it always gets done. And I think that's the important part is, ma- is make sure you get it done, even if it takes longer. Justin, thank you so much for being on. I always love seeing your face, hearing your voice, talking about 137 and the exciting markets you all invest into. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for doing this, Nat. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.